Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of addiction, withdrawal, self-harm, and gaslighting. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. There's nothing like an arcade on a rainy day. The wet cold fades away into warm neon as he went to a world of barrel-throwing monkeys, multicolored ghosts, and space invaders. There's always something new to try. An unusual arcade cabinet draws your eye, its glassy all-black surface glinting in the half-light. The game is simple but difficult. Shoot down a series of attackers as they move through a group of mind-bending patterns and spaces. The enemies constantly change, their unnatural geometric shapes giving some hint toward their movements, but not much. Each successful hit is hard-earned. Fascinated, you place your quarter on the top of the console to indicate your intent to play next. Your turn comes. The lights flash. A tonal music plays. You take the joystick. Tiny 8-bit guns fire in a spinning tube of light. You're so engrossed, you reach for one of the stools against the wall beside the machine. You sit down as the little ships come faster and faster. And you never get up again. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Today's episode is part of our Urban Legends series. Every Tuesday, we explore those chilling stories you hear secondhand, the kind that seem made up, but contain a kernel of truth. Urban Legends is only on Spotify, so keep listening here to never miss an episode. But don't forget to come back each Thursday for a classic episode of Haunted Places, covering yet another ghost-filled locale. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we examine an urban legend from the dawn of video games. It's a cautionary tale far before its time, combining the anxieties of government conspiracy and brainwashing with that of the world's first interactive electronic entertainment. Many people agree that video games are addictive. But what happens when the addiction is deeper than a few nights of insomnia or Tetris-themed dreams? What happens when the symptoms of withdrawal include self-harm and suicide, when the players themselves begin to disappear? In the early 1980s, arcades were the place to be, and Donkey Kong was king. But on November 27, 1981, a series of strange events in a suburb outside of Portland coincided with the appearance of a mysterious black arcade cabinet in several area arcades. The game, Polybius, is said to be a mix of shooter and puzzle, utilizing strange images and atonal sounds to control the player's mind, inducing nausea, nightmares, and even an inclination towards self-harm. 
The story goes that men in government-issue suits were seen servicing the machines. And then, one day, all of the cabinets just disappeared entirely. Some players disappeared too, or so the legend says. No one has ever been able to provide evidence of the game ever existing, even if hundreds of Portland natives swear they've played it. The story is one of communal memory, especially through the eyes of children. But the dangers of the mysterious game cabinet still resonate today in the injuries and even deaths of gamers as they pursue their next achievement, the next high score. A little chance at virtual eternity before someone pulls the plug. Zara wasn't very good at video games, but she still loved them. She could be a pinball wizard or a fighter pilot, or a giant yellow mouth chasing down ghosts. It was far more interesting than being a pudgy high schooler with Coke bottle glasses and an out-of-date wardrobe. The arcade was always the best part of the shopping complex that her mom frequented all too often. A desperate attempt to escape the organ gloom by retreating into a neon daydream. Zara took in a deep breath of stale air and body odor as she walked into the arcade. It smelled like boy, but it was home. Kids were already lining up at her favorite machines, quarters glinting off every plastic surface. Around the corner, she saw a news crew setting up lights to watch someone attempt a new world record on asteroids. She scanned the room, looking for a corner where she could get lost in a game without anyone teasing her for how many quarters she needed to spend. Her eyes landed on a newer machine in the back corner. Its sleek, all-black look nearly blended into the carpeted walls. Zara found herself moving toward it before she even saw her friend Polly bent in front of the screen. The few tendrils of her curly hair not pulled up into her pink scrunchie, casting shadows on her face in the blue light. Zara walked up to the cabinet and put her quarter near the joystick, smiling at Polly as she offered a soft hello. Polly didn't respond, her eyes still darting across the screen as blue-green bubble letters greeted her. A title screen with a series of high scores. No publisher, no year, no little mascot. Just one word. Polybius. Zara hadn't heard of it before, but she didn't always keep up with the new releases. She settled in next to Polly, taking refuge from the stagnant smell of sweat in her friend's love's baby-soft perfume. Her world narrowed to a black screen with a large circle bisected by large white lines to form a grid of sorts. In the middle of the screen was a smaller circle. Suddenly, a series of shapes tumbled toward the center circle, making little sparks on impact. It was jarring, stressful, but beautiful all the same. Zara watched as Polly moved the red joystick around, highlighting different sections of the grid. The game was easy enough to figure out. Take out the multicolored shapes by aiming at the right quadrant. She didn't want to break Polly's concentration, so Zara watched patiently as she leveled up, the circle transforming into other shapes. Plus signs, squares, six-pointed stars. The red dots came faster and faster. Finally, with a whir of electronic noises, Polly's character died. Zara congratulated Polly on getting as far as she did. The other girl didn't respond. 
she asked Polly politely to step aside. Polly didn't move. Zara nudged her with her shoulder. Polly's eyes never left the screen. Zara had had enough. There was an etiquette to how this was done. If Polly wasn't going to obey the social contract, Zara would force her hand. She walked to the back of the machine and unplugged it before plugging it back in. When she stood next to Polly again, the screen was still blinking in its friendly bubble letters. A few seconds later, it went black. Polly blinked, turning towards Zara slowly. Zara was ready to yell at her until she saw the dazed look on her face. Polly opened her mouth to say something. Then she collapsed. Zara repeated Polly's name over and over again, gently shaking her. The girl lay still in her arms for several moments. Slowly, her eyes fluttered open. She asked who Polly was. Zara was at a loss for words. She stayed with Polly as the paramedics evaluated her. Polly couldn't remember who she was or even what decade she lived in. Zara pointed out her friend's laser focus on Polybius, but Polly didn't even remember playing the game. Her voice was distant as she explained that her head was full of static, like a snowy television that couldn't find the right wire positioning. The doctors decided to keep Polly overnight. They were worried about her cognition. Zara asked her mother if she could spend the night with Polly's family. Her mother had several concerns, but she allowed Zara to do it. Polly looked so small in her hospital bed, a doll with vacant eyes and a hollow smile. Zara brought her Walkman to the hospital, tucking Polly's hair behind her ears so she could place the headphones correctly. It was strange to see Polly without her scrunchie. She figured the doctors must have taken it off for tests. She pressed play and studied Polly's face, hoping Queen and David Bowie could fix what medicine couldn't. But Polly only stared, studying shapes in the wallpaper Zara couldn't see. Zara curled up in a chair, fighting chills from the strong air conditioning. The room started to blur in front of her. Slowly, she closed her eyes. Zara woke to the sound of screams. Polly was sitting upright in her bed, her IV ripped out of her arm. Blood trickled onto the white hospital sheets. Her mother was holding her tightly, but she wouldn't stop screaming. Zara tried to help, but Polly's mother pushed her away. Polly thrashed wildly in her bed, digging her nails into her mother's skin. Zara ran into the hallway, begging for someone to help them. Another scream joined Polly's, unearthly harmony. Zara rushed back toward the room. Polly's mother was hyperventilating, her hand now bloody as well a perfect imprint of teeth on her arms. Two orderlies rushed in to sedate Polly. She snarled at them, bucking her head backward and using her nails like talons. But they were professionals, and they held her still until the drugs took effect. She crumpled in on herself, her eyes going wild before they fell shut. It had only taken a handful of seconds, but Zara continued to hear Polly's screams in her ears. She couldn't sleep too afraid of what would happen if she closed her eyes. The blare of hospital alarms and the rushing of feet to take care of other patients helped to keep Zara awake for several hours. She imagined the world as a game of Pac-Man, 
orderlies chasing after patients as they gobbled up little dots of medication. Slowly, slowly, she felt her eyes closing and her head drooping against the uncomfortable wooden handles of the chair. She saw herself in the arcade, but it didn't smell like sweaty teenagers anymore. The pungent smell of bleach coated the air, making it hard for Zara to breathe. The game cabinets had been abandoned. Some of the screens were frozen, others were cracked. Galaga had been ripped open, its electronic guts exposed like it had been abandoned mid-surgery. Loud blips came from the corner of the room. The blue-green title, Polybius, shone brightly against the dark backdrop. Her hands itched to reach for the joystick. No one else was here. She'd finally get a chance. There was something sticky on the handles, but she didn't let that deter her. She could wash her hands soon enough. The game started as her fist closed around the controls. The first level was easy enough which was really saying something for her. But each time she took out one of the red dots, she felt a sharp pinch of pain somewhere in her body. It was tolerable, so she kept playing. The levels got harder. Each pinch grew more intense, but she couldn't stop. If she stopped, something terrible might happen. She couldn't say why she felt that way, but she was certain of it. Zara powered through levels, tears staining her cheeks as the pain grew. Her arms started to cramp from holding the controls. She tried to let go for a minute, wipe the sweat off her palms, but white-hot pain radiated from her hands as she tried to move. She looked down to see that her arms were bolted into the controls. Hot plastic crawled up her body. Blue-green tendrils pushed out of the game and up her nose. It tickled at first, but the pain became more severe as it climbed higher and higher toward her brain. Zara's body hit the cold tile, and she awoke with a start. Her breathing started to return to normal, but there was a pounding in her head that was hard to think around. Screams came from the other side of the room, and Zara scrambled to her feet, ready to hold Polly until help came. Her hands slid into hers as the sound got louder. But the screams weren't coming from Polly. Zara realized her hands were wet, sticky. She finally looked up to find the source of the sound. It was Polly's mother, who was pointing at Zara's bloody arms. Coming up, someone beats Polly's high score. Now back to the story. Zara told herself it had all been a nightmare. Her best friend wasn't practically comatose after playing a strange video game at their favorite arcade. Zara herself hadn't dreamed her way into self-mutilation. It was all impossible, wasn't it? A nurse took Zara to her own room to disinfect her wounds and bandage them. Long trails of crescent marks ran up and down her forearms. She tried to explain that she didn't know where the marks had come from, the nurse shook her head sadly, as though she saw this all too often. The woman left, and Zara was all alone with her thoughts. She wanted to know if Polly was okay, but Zara's arms still felt like they were coated in plastic. An 
ice pick poked through her skull every few seconds, sending searing pain through her nerves. The light was too bright. There were too many sounds. As illogical as it sounded, even to her own ears, she wondered if the game had somehow infected her. Blood dripped from her nose. The door opened, but the nurse wasn't there to greet her. A man introduced himself as Dr. Crown. He wanted to ask Zara a couple of questions about her night. Zara's ears started to ring. She squinted through the lights to look at him and nodded her head. He started by asking who Polly was. That was an easy enough question to answer, but she didn't like the way his brow furrowed as he took notes. Dr. Crown listened patiently as Zara recounted the experience at the arcade. He wrote down everything she said, the wrinkles in his face growing more pronounced. Zara started to shift in her seat. She didn't like having to relive what had happened to Polly, and she was resolved to not say any more than she had to. She told him that she'd been sleeping and woke up with wounds on her hands. Polly's mother could confirm the whole thing. Dr. Crown adjusted his glasses and leaned forward slowly. Tension started to build in Zara's body. He told her very patiently that no teenage girl named Polly had come in tonight. They couldn't confirm where Zara's wounds had come from or even how Zara had ended up in the patient's ward at the hospital. Her head throbbed. She tried to make sense of his words through her haze of pain, but all she felt was static. Polly had collapsed in her arms. There had been dozens of witnesses as the arcade was shut down early. Dr. Crown told Zara that the arcade was still open. They had called the store manager earlier tonight. He said that Zara had been playing Ms. Pac-Man for hours and then disappeared. She shook her head slowly. Black spots danced in her vision. Zara focused on Dr. Crown's features as best she could. She asked him what came next. He told her that she probably needed to be at a different facility, one that could better deal with her issues. Zara stood up slowly. She needed to get out of this room, to get out of this hospital. But before she could even put one foot in front of the other, Dr. Crown grabbed her. He held her in place. The pain in her head exploded. She hunched in on herself, her hands trying desperately to reach her head, but unable to get there. Dr. Crown tissed to himself that she was getting worse. They needed to act now. She heard the door open and saw a flash of black clothing, but her vision was dimming. The world was too loud, too bright, too overwhelming for her brain to process much of anything. She asked to speak with her parents about this. Dr. Crown said they'd already been informed, but that didn't make sense. She didn't have a license yet. She hadn't carried any form of ID. They didn't even know where she'd come from. That's what he'd said earlier. Zara tried to shuffle her thoughts into order, but she couldn't articulate them. Her head was just so heavy. She took another step, nearly falling. Dr. Crown let go of her. She did not hesitate. One second was all the head start she was going to get. She nearly slammed into a body before her hand closed around the metal of the door. She pulled it back with all the strength she could muster, hitting whoever had been standing near it. 
She didn't stop to look and see what had happened or who it was. It wouldn't have mattered anyways. Her vision had narrowed to a small circle. People blurred in the center like red dots. Zara could hear footfalls behind her. Someone was shouting her name. She kept running. Muscle memory was the only tool at her disposal, but she remembered the number of turns it took to go from Polly's hospital room to the one they'd put her in. She'd wanted to be able to get back to her. Left, right, left, right, level B, A wing. It wasn't much, but it was a start. But the room was empty. Any notes about Polly's stay had been taken down. There was no sign of Polly or her mother. The voices of the men chasing her grew louder. Zara slid under the bed. The door opened. Two sets of shiny black shoes entered the room. Both men were wearing black suits with small white badges clipped to their pants. Zara crept backward slowly, pushing her body as close to the wall as she could. In the dim light under the bed, she saw a small lump. Her hand reached out slowly and closed around the object, pulling it silently toward the ambient glow from the harsh hospital lights. Polly's fluorescent pink scrunchie. She had been here. The two men talked amongst themselves, making plans for what to do next. Zara held her breath. After several minutes of talking, they left the room. She waited a few minutes before crawling out from under the bed. She tied Polly's scrunchie into her hair. Zara turned the handle of the door slowly and peered outside. She didn't see either man and crept out into the hallway. She walked casually toward the elevators, her eyes scanning for any signs of trouble. Before all time and space seemed to blink out of existence, leaving her in a massive black expanse. Her eyes were welded shut. She didn't know how she knew it in all the darkness, but she did. She couldn't scream. She couldn't breathe. She was going to be swallowed by the dark and the cold unless she could open her eyes. She had to open her eyes. Her eyelids burned as she forced them apart, but she finally did it. She was standing in the hospital again. Her head throbbed with pain. Zara took another step. The door next to her swung open. Two pairs of hands grabbed her, pulling her inside. She fought as hard as she could. She saw the needle coming toward her, but she couldn't do anything to stop it. The world went white. She woke up in a van, barreling down the highway. The Polybius cabinet rumbled in the back seat. Polly was next to her. But she wasn't the Polly that Zara knew. She had no expression, no personality. A blank slate of a person. Zara hugged her nonetheless, telling her she was so happy she was all right. Polly replied that she'd always been all right. She'd gotten a high score. The legend of Polybius leans heavily toward conspiracy theory, shadowy government agents, electronic mind control, young kids disappearing from under their parents' noses, spirited away after being seduced by a video game. 
but details seem sketchy, just slippery enough to offer believability without actual fact. But Kat Despira, a journalist and veteran of the Portland arcade scene, has found the convergence of circumstances in 1981 that likely led to the tale of the mysterious puzzle game and its all-black cabinet. On November 21, 1981, a 12-year-old named Brian Mauro sat down in front of an Asteroids arcade cabinet at the Malibu Grand Prix Arcade in Beaverton, Oregon, a suburb about seven miles west of downtown Portland. His goal was to use the three-day Thanksgiving weekend to play Asteroids for over 48 hours in order to beat the 30.1 million point world record high score set by 16-year-old Dennis Hernandez of Geneva, New York. The media was on hand to watch Mabro's run, and as a result, there were several written accounts of his attempt, including reports in the Oregonian and Eugene Register Guard newspapers. Unfortunately, this is not a tale of a young prodigy's triumph. 28 hours into his marathon, Mabro's decision to consume only orange juice and Coca-Cola as he played caught up with him. His arms cramped and he developed severe gastrointestinal upset, fleeing the arcade, according to the Eugene Register Guard. This is not at all surprising. As Despira points out, the early 1980s were the dawn of modern esports. Players competed to beat each other's world records all the time, resulting in marathon gaming sessions that took major tolls on even grown men's bodies, regardless of their choices of nourishment. But Mauro wasn't the only player to flee the Malibu Grand Prix that day. Only a few feet away from the media hubbub surrounding Mauro, 14-year-old Michael Lopez was going for his own personal best on Tempest, another Atari shooter that partially demanded players think in 3D as they took out enemies that approached from different angles down a series of tubes. The mechanics of Tempest are the closest match to anecdotal descriptions of Polybius's gameplay. And it's no wonder, considering how the fast-paced visuals affected Michael Lopez. Lopez later told Despira, I began to feel a weird sensation in the back of my head. Then my vision started going out. Little flashing lights. Suddenly, I got sick and stumbled outside, where I threw up all over the parking lot. One of my friends walked with me back home, but we didn't make it all the way there. My head hurt so bad. It got to where I couldn't speak. I couldn't walk anymore. I collapsed on someone's lawn, four blocks from my house, rolling and screaming in pain. It felt like my head was cracking open. Someone called the cops. This would be the first of many severe migraines Lopez would suffer over the course of his life. But try as he might, he couldn't convince his friends that the cause was his brain, not the video game. Rumors swirled at his school that Tempest had tried to control his mind. While some kids stayed away, others dared each other to play it. According to Lopez, the game cabinet sort of disappeared for a while, shortly after. Ten days later, a group of FBI raids reportedly occurred on arcades around the Portland and Beaverton area. A 48-year-old arcade owner had modified his machines to pay out money rather than points, resulting in an illegal gambling operation. A few months later, in 1982, an arcade in Seattle, Washington, was revealed to have been a federal sting operation built to surveil and capture the fencing of stolen goods. 
Thieves and buyers would often meet at arcades, exchange cash, and then stick around for a game or two before heading home. The FBI concealed cameras and microphones inside arcade cabinets, but not all the games were good candidates for clandestine technology. The arcade cabinets needed to have a particular kind of glass bezel on the screen to obscure the hidden camera. One of the best candidates for this was Tempest. This explains Michael Lopez's observation that Tempest had disappeared from area arcades. There were only three cabinets for the game available from distributors in the Portland metropolitan area, and the feds wanted all of them. Government agents were frequently seen examining game cabinets in the area arcades before and during the sting operation. The strange behavior of the literal men in black could have coupled with the post-Watergate revelations of CIA mind control experiments to form a nightmare for Pacific Northwest preteens. On the night of January 31st, 2012, 23-year-old Chin Rong Yu sat down in an internet cafe in New Taipei City, Taiwan. He logged into a multiplayer online battle arena game called League of Legends. He played the game for 23 hours, then went still. Nine hours later, one of the cafe's employees tried to rouse him to tell him that his purchase time was up. Yu was dead. When the paramedics tried to remove his body from the chair, Rigor Mortis left his hands bent, eternally reaching for the mouse and keyboard. Six months later, 19-year-old Chuang Chung Feng played Diablo 3 for 10 hours in another Taiwanese internet cafe. He stood up to take a break, took three steps, and died. He was only the second of three deaths tied to video games in Taiwan that year. The phenomenon isn't bound by time or geography. In 1982, a pre-med student named Peter Burkowski dropped dead of a heart attack after earning the top two high scores in the multi-directional shooter, Berserk. Video games are a widely popular form of entertainment, and the odds always were that someone would pass away doing what they love. But not every gamer is casual. In May 2015, a newspaper in Huafei, China, reported that paramedics were called to assist a man who had collapsed after playing a game for over 14 days. He tried to refuse medical attention, saying, leave me alone, just put me back in my chair, I want to keep playing. The same feedback loop of safe risk and concrete reward that makes video games so satisfying is also what can make them so addictive especially when a user is already vulnerable or isolated. Part of what makes the legend of Polybius believable is that the negative symptoms tied to the game evoke the behaviors of addicts in need of their next fix. Nausea, nightmares, and self-destructive behaviors. At times, the story of Polybius would be right at home in the plot of any Assassin's Creed or Hideo Kojima title. But the fact remains that two kids did run out of the Malibu Grand Prix Arcade in Beaverton, Oregon on November 27, 1981. And government agents really were hiding equipment in arcade cabinets in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1980s. These facts could all be connected, but maybe not. Don't obsess over it. It's only a video game.
Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Until next time, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kerry Murphy. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson.